Well, we're rounding out Genesis today. I enjoy Genesis. I love preaching in Genesis. I love reading Genesis. It's supremely challenging and joyful all at the same time, both to read it and to preach about it. Um, so let me begin with something a little on the lighter side before we get into Judah and in Genesis 49 uh, at at our home, and for any of you that have kids, our grandparents to kids, or have spent any time around kids, you've probably seen recently one of the in things is Paw Patrol these days, right? These cute little puppies. Uh, they can all, they have these little machines that they ride on, and they have their little friend who's a kid, and they do big things, basically. They rescue people who are in trouble. Um, they're very cute dogs and cute puppies. I have some, some beefs with generally the genre of kids' shows right now, anyways, uh, but they're cute. And so I was sitting there watching some of this with our five-year-old son uh, not too long ago. And there was a moment where uh, the Paw Patrol has been called out. They uh, have to rescue a penguin. A baby penguin is stuck, and this is an Arctic environment, on a small Arctic island and has to get across the water to the rest of the penguin crew. And the Paw Patrol just happens to have a whole bunch of canoes. They put them all together to make a bridge. And one of the guys that's with them is this kind of hippie dude that's standing there like, hey, cool kind of guy, right? And he's standing in the middle coaxing the little penguin to come across. The penguin slips. It flips up onto his head and lands on his head. He makes a funny line, the little hippie guy, in his hippie way. I'm laughing at the funny line. My five-year-old, over his head, he's laughing at the penguin on his head. And he's saying it, the penguin's on his head. That's so funny. It, comedy that works on two levels, right? This is good stuff. As you're reading scripture, I, I hope you recognize it. And as we're doing it in this particular way through Immerse, the reader's edition, I, I hope you're recognizing that you have a couple different storylines going on. You have what we often refer to as sort of the upper story and the lower story going on. And, and you see that upper story kick off from the very beginning of Genesis. Genesis really is kind of four stories put together um, as, as far as the broad themes. The first is, of course, creation, where God kicks it all off. And then humans in three pages mess it up. And, and so God kicks it off. You see God's intent, God's plan. It's good. What he creates is good. Who he creates are good. And we're the ones who mess that up immediately. And then you see it unfold into the second phase of the story with Abraham, where God chooses and elects Abraham and his descendants to be the blessing to the rest of the world, to show the world who God is, and to rescue them from page three and what happened on page three and the turning inward of sin. That's the big story that's going on over top. And underneath that, then, you have a lot of these lower stories, the everyday decisions that people make, that you and I make. And some of those, like we heard testified to this morning, could be very sacred decisions, and some could be very secular decisions that we make. Some of them aim us towards the upper story and, and, and move us closer to what God is doing and the redemption God has, and some of those decisions move us away from that great story. The third phase you see in Genesis is the story of Jacob. I haven't really skipped over Isaac in, in a sense, but Jacob is the next big thing that's there in the storyline where God is really filling and fulfilling his covenant that he's made with Abraham through the, the sons of Jacob that will establish the 12 tribes of Israel. And then finally you get to the story that's going to be our focus this morning, which is the story of Joseph. And really what's interesting is as you consider the story of Joseph, that's actually a lower story versus the upper story part of the fourth part of Genesis. 
the upper story part, and I didn't realize this until a couple of years ago, and it really opened my eyes to something remarkable God's doing, is really the story of Judah. I don't know if, as, if anybody was reading that this week, and you see Judah, he pops in and he pops out occasionally, and you get a couple really big glimpses into Judah's life. But really, he's the upper story piece at work, and Joseph's is really the lower story piece at work in that. And what I want to establish this morning, the point I want to tell us as we look at Judah particularly, not really Joseph in that story, is that regardless of your past, you're invited to God's future. You're invited to that upper story. You and I are. And it turns out it's really good. It's a really good story. It's really better than anything we could imagine on our own or participate in on our own. And we'll try and, and get involved in things that take us away from that upper story all the time. But the upper story is the one we want to be a part of. You are invited to that, no matter what the past has held for you. And so let's turn to Genesis 49. Let's start at verse 1 this morning. Because here you have Jacob. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob we read in these first few books of the, the Old Testament that kind of reminds us God's the God of the covenant promise for his people and for all of humanity to bring them back to him. In Genesis 49.1, you have the scene where Jacob is with all of his sons. Jacob is old. He knows that the end is coming, and he's going to bless, give blessings to all of his sons. But it's, it's a particular way that it comes. Verse 1 says, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. That kind of comes across as a little bit more than just a, a blessing. There's a prophetic element to this. I'm going to tell you what the future holds, sons. And, and if you read the first three blessings, one of them is on the screen right now. We'll, we'll turn to it in a second here in, in verse 3. The first three don't really seem like blessings so much. Uh, they seem like the opposite of that, in fact. Um, and you think, boy, does Jacob understand what he's supposed to be doing here? Because these just don't seem like they quite meet the mark. I mean, you look at Reuben, the firstborn, the one who, the, entitled to a double portion, basically. Reuben, you are my firstborn, verse 3 says, my might, the strength, the sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. That sounds good so far. That's what he should be. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. That is, he slept with one of his father's uh, wives, Bilhah. So Reuben has essentially been kind of cut out of the promise, not fully out of the promise, but he doesn't get the rights of the firstborn, that, that blessing that should be his. His immorality has cut him out of that. Then you have uh, Simeon and Levi come next together, and, and as you look at the blessing that's there, now in Genesis 36... Uh, their sister Dina had been wronged by uh, Shechem and uh, Simeon and Levi take it upon themselves in a very violent way to take the law into their own hands to get even with Shechem and all the Shechemites. And it's because of that and because of their violent ways that they're essentially kind of not blessed in the process. He says, now you could have been first and then you could have been first, but instead you guys went the route of immorality and unrighteousness. In fact, he even says, this is one of the interesting lines in verse 6, it's not on the screen, he says, they hamstrung oxen as they pleased. That is, you guys have no sense. Now, in, in war in the ancient world, the capturing, the conquering army might sometimes hamstring a war horse from the other army so it can never war horse again. Mean, I understand that. I'm not for it. But he says, you guys would hamstring the plunder. You guys would hamstring the useful thing. You guys would cut the brakes on your own car is what you would do. 
Why would you do that? You guys have no sense. So clearly, he's not blessing these first three. And then he gets to Judah. And let's read what he says. We'll read at least the first portion of that in verse 8. He says, Judah, so this is the fourth son. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Judah, by the way, sounds like praise in Hebrew. There's a play on words there. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. You're you're always going to have victory. You're going to have the upper hand. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're the firstborn, essentially, at this point. The leader. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? There's a little bit of the plot of the Lion King involved right there in that. As in, you have Simba, who doesn't look like much, but then becomes the king. Same kind of idea playing out here. And then, verse 10, and this is key to it all. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And let's just stop there for now in this. That for he to whom it belongs, some of you that are using maybe an older translation, Notice I didn't say a worse. I said an older translation because I like them all. An older translation might have the word Shiloh either in the text or underneath that was sometimes used uh, in this phrase. It's from the Hebrew that's there. Uh, As a, a marker, it basically means what the text says, he to whom it belongs. All of a sudden, it's pointing to something way out beyond Judah that's gonna happen. This from very early times was looked on as a messianic text. That, that out of this tribe is going to come the one who saves Israel, the Messiah. He's the one who rules, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. And we'll go on. It'll talk a little bit further about him. We'll get to that in a little bit. And you can see as you follow the line of Judah, from Judah and the tribe of Judah comes King David. And from King David's line comes Jesus. So we have this messianic text just hidden in here, in this, as a blessing and prophecy from Jacob. Now, for those of you that have read Genesis, a lot of you I know did it this week, um, you might be looking at this point and say, okay, Reuben, I could see, you know, he was kind of, uh, he did wrong. Uh, Simeon and Levi, yeah, okay, I can see that they did wrong. But Judah wasn't exactly a saint for those that read the text. Judah has a lot of issues with him. He's the one who, when Joseph, his brother, comes uh, when they're out tending the the flocks in the field, uh, and they're like, oh, let's kill our brother because we don't like him, and they throw him in a a dry well and let him sit there for a while while they kind of think it through over lunch. Judah's the one who says, why should we get nothing for this? Why don't we sell him to these slave traders over here? That's Judah, the fourth one in line who gets this blessing. Judah's the one, it gets worse. Judah's the one who in Genesis 38, you get this long passage on Judah and Tamar. I don't know if if as you read that this week, you're like, what's going on with this story? There's so much wrong with it, with what goes on. Judah's first son uh, is married to Tamar, and his first son dies. And the, the law basically was a leverate marriage is what it's called, that the second son is supposed to take over and take care of the wife essentially as bringing him in as a wife in his household. And the second son doesn't do that, and he dies. And then the third son of Judah is too young to get married, and Judah says, let's, let's put a pin in this. When he gets older, 
you can marry him. I promise him to you. And then Judah doesn't follow through. And then Judah ends up sleeping with uh, his daughter-in-law, Tamar, finds out she's pregnant, and then says, she's horrible. We should, we should kill her. And she says, oh, by the way, you're the dad. And then he says, wait a minute. I think I was wrong here. There's so many things wrong with this story. We won't go into all of that. Uh, I preached about it a couple years ago. I can find that for you if you want. But so many things wrong. That's Judah, right? Right now, we're not thinking great thoughts about the guy, right? This is not a real upstanding citizen. So why does he get the blessing now? But if you look further, he has a turning point at some point in his life. We don't get full insight into that, but we get something. Because Judah is the one who, when the family finally has to go to Egypt, Joseph has long been gone from the family. He's second in command of Egypt. There's a famine, and, and Jacob's whole family has to go there. Judah's the one who stands up for the youngest, now Benjamin. He's the one who says, you know what? We've got to take Benjamin with us to Egypt, and I'll stand up for him. I'll guard him from any wrong when they go. And when, when push comes to shove and he has to stand up for Benjamin, he says, don't enslave Benjamin for the wrongdoing that he's accused of. You enslave me instead. I will take his place. Something changes in Judah's life to make him actually a man of character. And I want to point something out about that. One of the things I think we should recognize from this is that character matters. Always. It won't save you, but it always matters to God. And so if we're talking, our point this morning is that regardless of your past, you are invited to God's future. I want to point out that there's an assumption behind that that we should catch, which is that God's plan is already in action, and there's nothing, he's not waiting around for us to join the plan. He's inviting us to join the plan that's already in process. We are not so important to God's plan that it's going to be on hold until we finally get the picture and come and join. God is already on the move, already doing things, and he says, okay, now get the picture, come on board with the plan that's already going on the upper story that's in progress. Interesting about this Joseph part of Genesis, where you look at Abraham earlier on in Genesis, and there's very much a choice that needs to be made on the part of Abraham. Are you going to embrace the covenant or not? For, for Jacob, there's very much a choice that needs to be made as he wrestles with God. Are you going to yield to my will or not? But what's interesting, Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, points out, when you get to this part of Genesis, it's almost like human activity really doesn't matter in God's plans at all. God's going to do what God's going to do, and then he's going to reveal to them, by the way, I was working the whole time. Did you see it? And he invites them on through that, at the end of that process. But I want to point out the caveat in all of this. So if, if we're, regardless of your past, you're invited to God's future, God's already at work. Character does matter because God's blessings are for those who join. And take the invitation. Those are the people that get to enjoy it. That's why Judah is the one who gets to enjoy it. Because he recognized what was wrong and course corrected and repented. I mean, do you think Judah had a moment where he thought to himself or where he decided he wanted to be better than he was? That he wanted to be more virtuous than he was? That he wanted to have good character? That he wanted to be remembered as somebody who was worth remembering? And not the opposite. That Tamar incident, I think, is the moment where he turns. And you can see, we'll go back to it in verse, chapter 38. It'll come up on the screen. Verse uh, 26. He's just come to the realization that Tamar said, you know what? Here are the signs that you gave me 
when all the stuff happened between us, that it's you, that you're the dad. And he said, she is more righteous than I. He all of a sudden recognizes, man, I'm kind of a louse. I, I'm, I'm a big jerk right here. There's something going on. And this becomes a turning point. And we don't get a lot more insight in it than that. But I think we can point to this as a turning point, or at least at say at some point, Joseph or uh, Judah, that's who we're talking about, made a conscious decision to be righteous and not wicked, to be wise and not a fool. And I say that because good character is not accidental. Right? Virtue doesn't happen on accident. We have to do it on purpose. We have to make conscious choices to be people of virtue and character, to be godly, ultimately. And we make those decisions in that lower story world, right? Those, these are the everyday small decisions that we make, that I'm going to move in an upper story direction. I had one of these moments, and this is small compared to Tamar in that incident. Uh, I had one of those moments uh, when I was in college. I was talking to my grandfather, uh, who had been a, he was a retired pastor himself, and um, we were having a conversation about a biblical text and he was in his early 90s, and I remember he said, you know, he, he liked the point I was making about a biblical text. It wasn't going to be pivotal in salvation, but it was a different way of looking at something. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about it this way for all these years, but I think you might be right. I'm going to have to consider the way you're suggesting I could understand that. Small little moment. And here's a man who is grounded in his faith, but open to following the truth where it took him to walking that line, to walking and making sure that he understood the text correctly and he understood the truth correctly. He was not a grumpy old man. He was, he was willing to change. He was not just set in his ways, and that's the only way I've read it, that's the only way I'm ever going to read it, tough. And I remember thinking in that moment, I want to be like that. That's the kind of person I want to be. And you have to set yourself then on a trajectory of small decisions that put yourself that way. You don't just become that overnight, right? A person who wants to become an astronaut doesn't go to art school, right? Or, the, or vice versa. You set yourself on a trajectory to go to the thing that you want to do if you're trying to achieve a goal like that. I like art school. I like astronauts. But you, you can't, you have to set yourself in the right direction. Judah made lower story decisions then that moved him towards the upper story, that moved him towards God's plan so he indeed would be more righteous than he was then. And as I read this, I don't know if you're challenged at all by, by Judah's story then, but does Judah's story bring any sense of judgment or conviction to your own life? Like there are things in the lower story of my life that are not leading in a Godward direction that I need to change. Things big and small that don't develop good character in us, but develop character that is unrighteous in us. As I read Judah's story, I see it, it might not be so grand as Judah's failings, but he made a conscious choice to move the other way. In Colossians 1, 15 and 16, a, a magnificent verse, Paul writes to us and he says, The Son... That's Jesus Christ. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. God has called us to be righteous. And we see in Judah and characters like him, somebody who can show us that the turn can be made, that repentance can happen, and what it looks like on the ground. But Jesus actually makes it possible to enter into that upper story, to enter into the salvation that God has for us. Because from the beginning, he wanted us and invited us into that upper story. And so we should recognize that character matters. And secondly, we should recognize that God's blessing is for the future, not for the past. And we're invited to that. What God has in store for us happens when we enter into that invitation and take that invitation of salvation and then begin to make those lower story decisions that actually move us in a Godward direction. God has faithfully provided a way of redemption for us. If you keep reading in Colossians 1, in verse 21 it says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. And as it turns out, if you keep reading the story, you discover that this upper story that God has going, the salvation and redemption, and the reconciliation of, of all that he created that God has, is really good and way beyond expectations when it's finally resolved in the end. The hope that we have is magnificent. And you can even see a precursor of that in the blessing that Jacob gives back in Genesis 49. Uh, I'll read that in a second, but I want to give us a, an idea of what, what's being said here, because to our ears it sounds funky, the way he says it. But he's basically, if you ever hear people say, you know, I'm going to be filthy rich someday. I'm going to be so rich I can light my cigarettes with $100 bills, don't smoke, and I'm going to be so rich someday that I can brush my teeth with champagne, right? Which is gross, don't do it. It's like, like a Scrooge McDuck scene where he's swimming through his gold coins, right? I'm going to have so much money, somebody might say someday. It's going to almost seem worthless how much I have. Um, maybe you've heard somebody say that. I, I wouldn't say that. But Genesis 49, 11 and 12, it says in the, in the blessing. Now this is talking about the one, the, the, the Shiloh, the one who's going to come. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. That verse 12 is a little hard to understand even for scholars, uh, but verse 11, let's just take a look at that for a moment. To our ears, this doesn't make any sense. Why, first of all, would you tether your donkey to a choice vine? You wouldn't, because that's where you're going to get the good grapes, unless all you have are choice wines. Then you can, you can tether it to any of those. Why would you wash your clothes in wine? Unless it's just almost so worthless, it's like water. There's so much of it. The abundance is what's at work here. That's what's in store. That's the promise that's ahead. It's not abundance now. It's abundance to come when the kingdom comes. To put it in the words of C.S. Lewis and the promises that are to come that we're entering into, the blessing that God has for us, C.S. Lewis says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. God's got a remarkable blessing in store for those who enter into the upper story. God's made a way to enter into the upper story. And we can see practically speaking, when we look at someone like Judah, we see a way that that was done. He began making decisions based on God's character, not on his own desires. If we wanted to translate that into what we see at play in the rest of Scripture, he made decisions eternally, not just for today. That's what he's doing for the promises to come. You see, for us, that means that we trust God's promise of redemption and reconciliation, making decisions that matter for eternity. Regardless of your past, we said you are invited to God's future. It's a good future. God's already got things in the works, and in every decision that we make, if we're in on the plan, we need to make those small, lower-story decisions that move us in a Godward direction at every turn. And that, that goes when, we, when we're uh, at home, when we're at the office, when we're at school, wherever it is. We're, we're faced with those decisions on a regular basis when, when we have to think about, should I say that, should I laugh at that, should I do that? We treat ourselves as if we are the righteous ones who God is forming into his image. Regardless of your past, the future is, is, is a blessed one if we find ourselves moving in that upward, upper story direction. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you've invited us in to your plan, to your purposes. You've, in fact, called us. And what a remarkable privilege that is that you would care about us as individuals, that you would call us to yourself, that you would ask us to be something different today than we were yesterday, and tomorrow than we were today. God, help us and reveal to us what righteousness looks like in our everyday decisions. Help us understand what righteousness looks like when we respond to one another in this place, when we go and have our coffee afterwards, when we drive home, when we're at home, relaxing this afternoon. Help us understand what it means to be your righteous people entering into your upper story world and the plan of salvation that you have. Help us understand what it means when we go to work and to school this week to not only be your righteousness, but to draw others into that righteousness, to be priests in that way. That we can pray on the behalf of those around us who don't know you and bring them into your presence. Father, help us be your righteous people in every little decision that we make, that we keep turning towards you rather than away from you. We pray this in your name. Amen.